Did you know using your browser in incognito mode doesn't actually protect your privacy? Take back your privacy with IPVanish VPN. Just one tap and all your data, passwords, communications, browsing history, and more will be instantly protected. IPVanish makes you virtually invisible online. Use IPVanish on all your devices, anytime you go online at home and especially on public Wi-Fi. Get IPVanish now for 70% off a yearly plan with this exclusive offer at IPVanish.com audio. My family thinks I'm crazy. A podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most. Because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that our government is shady. Like, oh, here we go, Mark. Off again with your... Mark being Mark again. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, that's the thing about podcasts is when you're on the air, it's like therapy, you know? If I can't talk to my family about this stuff, I'll talk to you, Matt, and all our listeners. You know, just tell your whole podcast. Yeah. So who are we talking about today, Matt? Vatican, a Latin word deriving from a term from the ancient practice of seeking prophecy. It is not known to I whether or not those who burned heretics at the stake for such practices realized the grim irony of their dumbfounded hypocrisy. Many know of men like Giordano Bruno or Galileo, whose thoughts, ideas, and actions put them at odds with the Church of Rome, but few know of the Vatican's equally heretical so-called Catholics, such as sorcerers. Sir Abbot Pico della Mirandola, Ignatius Loyola, and the Hermetic Prince of the Vatican II Council. Here to reveal all this and more is sought-after returning guest Michael A. Hoffman, who gives a glimpse into his 700-plus page book, The Occult Renaissance Church of Rome, a penetrating look into the substrata of the Roman Church after it had departed from the 1400 years of orthodoxy to embrace institutionalized equivocation, deceit, usurious money power, and diabolic occultism. In this epic work, Hoffman reveals how Rome became a repository and cultivator of alien forces which have only fully emerged in the 20th century. Without further ado, Michael Hoffman joins me, Mystic Mark, here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. Thank you for tuning in and enjoy this episode with Michael A. Hoffman. So you have this egotistical and pathological pride, which is the prime aspect of the occult. It preys on our pride, on that earliest idea that we would be gods, that Satan worshipped, that Satan whispered in the ears of Adam and Eve. That's the essence of 
the Western secret societies, where did they get it from? They got it from the Kabbalah. Where did the Kabbalah get it from? Well, where was the Kabbalah in the Talmud written initially? In Babylon. And what was Babylon? A belt of transmission for Egyptian paganism. So we're back to the fount of all of this. Can Christians in any way, didn't St. Paul say, what fidelity has darkness with light? And what connection can darkness possibly have with light that we are supposed to stay separate from this? And yet they've invaded the sanctuaries. Actually invaded is the wrong word because they've been asked in. That's not an invasion. They've actually been, been asked in. And so these are all big issues which I wish were at the center of the conservative family values movement and even at the center of new age and occult people who are more curious about how they may have been manipulated and sold on various types of Crowley Crowley propaganda, the British intelligence agent Alistair Crowley, his Abbey of Thelema, which comes from the Catholic monk Rabelais, a do what thou wilt shall be the, the whole of the law. All of these aspects which promise liberation <coughs> like the channelers promise to put you in touch with an angelic being who will help you guide your life and actually despise humanity the great lure of satan is is that he's going to make us powerful we're going to become rock stars we'll have all the drugs all the girls and all the money but satan is the enemy of the human race and whether or not those particular temptations are fulfilled in this life ultimately one's eternal destiny will be much a sorrowful thing as a result of that intervention from the dark forces That interest. And what I've tried to point out to the folks who were intrigued by Twilight Language, for example, or the earlier book, is that in some ways, the Occult Renaissance Church of Rome is an extension of both of those books, because I'm going into the roots of the Western secret societies as they manifested in the 15th century. And we have to remember that prior to the coming of the Renaissance, a lot of what was magic was disreputable in Christendom because it was associated with dark and dirty things. And along came the Renaissance and sort of baptized that magic by presenting it as we're dealing with the angelic side of a hidden part of nature, that it isn't necessarily diabolic. So it was presented to, first of all, the Catholic hierarchy as being in that benign forum. And then from there came some of the most important maguses of the Western secret societies. And I would say to this day, 500 years later, Pico della Mirandola remains at the center and heart of the Western occult. And yet this is overlooked by people who say that they're interested in the alchemical processing and chronicling its path through our history. Wow. And, and that's exactly where I'd like to, to focus today because, you know, so many of, so many people who, who mention Christians, Catholics, Jews, you know, they have such an unnuanced understanding of it. They, they really are just sort of slipshod kind of throwing <laughs> accusations around. And your book was none of that. It was, it was really incredible to see it bald-faced like that. So where should we start, Mr. Hoffman? I mean, you're the expert. Would you like to maybe tell folks about, you know, the Vatican and and how it's dedicated to the patron saint Janus? Or where where does this story really start? What's, what's pivotal for the, the listeners to understand? It starts with Plethon, who was a, a Greek 
and a kind of a Greek Orthodox heretic who came to the Council of Florence in the middle of the 15th century. And he was the belt of transmission for many occult doctrines into the heart of the Medici-dominated church at that time, based in Florence and also in Rome. And particularly, he was introducing the Kabbalah into the hierarchy of the Catholic Church. And it's my thesis that at least since Alexander VI, the so-called Borgia Pope, who's notorious for having children, including Cesare Borgia, who was a murderer, and Lucrezia Borgia, who was a famous poisoner. And people tend to obsess on those facts while overlooking the fact that Alexander VI had the great Catholic reformer Savonarola murdered in Florence. He was a Catholic monk who was trying to clean out the church and clean out many of the evils that you and I will be discussing today. He was judicially executed. And also perhaps more pertinent to what we're discussing today is the fact that Pico della Mirandola had been condemned in a token way when he published his 900 theses, which were the Kabbalistic theses. He gave these arguments in favor of Kabbalah and the occult and introduced it into the church. And there were certainly strong uh, Christ faithful factions inside the Church of Rome at that time that were resistant to his theology. And so popes previous to Alexander VI had made some trivial proscriptions of his thought. And to me, all they were was pro forma, preaching to the audience. They were symbolic. They didn't really hinder Pico della Mirandola in any significant way. And so it was Alexander VI who lifted all the sanctions against Pico and basically said to the church that Pico della Mirandola's Kabbalistic theses are permissible for study. Now, remember, when I say the church, I'm talking about the hierarchy. Because at no time could this information percolate down to the priests or the parish level or the parishioners in the pew because they would have never tolerated it. This They would have recognized what these intellectuals and theologians did not, that this was diabolism right at its heart. So this was always a clandestine and secret movement inside the papacy and inside the hierarchy among cardinals, numerous cardinals like Viterbo and many others like them who absorbed this. Now, one of the counters to my documentation is to claim, well, the church didn't really get absorbed, the hierarchy didn't really get absorbed in this Judaic cultism, because after all, the church burned the Talmud, okay? And the thing was, is again, like this token preaching to the choir gestures against Pico della Mirandola, the burning of the Talmud, for example, in Paris and eventually in Rome, None of that interdicted the Talmud. In fact, it actually burnished it with the aura of the forbidden. And so that in, in the Occult Renaissance Church of Rome book that we're discussing, I point out that the first Medici Pope, which is Pope Leo X, was instrumental in having the finest edition of the Talmud in the history of the Talmud, the Babylonian Talmud, published by the Bomberg Press. Bomberg, despite that name, was not a Judaic press. It was a Catholic press. And this beautiful Talmud was published in Venice. And the Talmud at that time, and we're talking in the 1520s now, was almost going extinct in terms of the integrity of the manuscripts associated with it. The manuscripts had been copied repeatedly by hand. They had not been published in any type of hardcover. Of course, the Gutenberg innovation of printing you know, was fairly young at that time. And so one could say that 
the corpus of the Talmud was rescued by Pope Leo X and the hierarchy around him by preserving it in this magnificent Bamberg Talmud. So that vitiates all these claims that the church was implacably opposed to the Talmud. No, the church, and not the church of Jesus Christ, but the church of Rome, as it had usurped the church of Jesus Christ, that was part of the founding of the Catholic Church, that church was inimical to the doctrine of Christ due to situation ethics, which is the substitution of human standards for the word of God relative to the circumstances of the times. That's that's really the core of the occult as it operated at this time. So they were clever enough, devious enough, sly enough to understand how to manipulate the opinion of those conservative members of the hierarchy who were opposed to this. So every once in a while, you would have these gestures. Well, we'll burn the Talmud to cover up the fact that we're the ones who rescued the Talmud. And this is much more obvious in the case of Pope St. Pius V, who was beloved of traditional Catholics because he was a spiritual impetus behind the greatest naval battle of the Renaissance, which was the Battle of Lepanto, when the Muslims came very close to overwhelming the navies of Christendom and having a major incursion into Europe. Much of Europe would be Islamic today, as some parts of the Balkans are, for example, Albania, had that Battle of Lepanto been lost. And Pope St. Pius V famously wielded a rosary and called it a rosary crusade. And so what that does is it washes away all of his other sins and crimes that he committed in the eyes of conservative and traditional Catholics. For them, Pius V's begins and ends, his Alpha and Omega, is Lepanto. And I think that's ridiculous. You know, So let's say that Napoleon was the victor in Moscow and Waterloo, which he wasn't. He was defeated. But had that happened, would that have then nullified all of the wicked things that he had done to the French people and to the world? Of course not. So taking taking a one-note incident about this pope and then overlooking the other things that he did. Well, what were the negative things that he did? He basically rescued the Kabbalah, as the Medici pope in 1520, Leo X, had done for the Talmud. So these things are unknown to traditional Catholics and conservative Catholics because their historians have skipped over them. And unfortunately, they're not in the mode of St. Thomas Aquinas, who emphasized reason, that God gave us powers of reason for a particular motivation. And that was that we would use our minds and our consciences to delve. And I find that many Catholics are very afraid of going into these areas. And occasionally, I've even had some of them take my book, Usury in Christendom, The Mortal Sin That Was and Now Is Not, which is an extension of this book, The Occult Renaissance, and talking about how the money power got control of the church. They've actually taken it to their priests who who are, in many cases, I'm sure good men, but they know nothing about usury, nothing about the hidden history of the renting of money. And they ask them, is this book okay for me to read? And they say, no, it's a danger to your soul. And the same thing has happened with my book, The Occult Renaissance Church of Rome. It's a danger to your soul. And so these people are fulfilling the Protestant stereotype of Catholics as being priest-ridden and as being having their minds turned off because the local priest tells you not to do that. Now, I have to say in testimony to the priests that I encountered as a child growing up in the Catholic Church like you, I never found that. 
in the in the late the early 1960s and the late 1960s throughout that period i was encouraged to think for myself by the priests that i knew i was an altar boy i was close to franciscan capuchin monks and they all wanted me to look into the bible study everything i could pro and contra and that's really the way that you of course you know you and i both know that that's the fundamental elementary path to finding the truth for oneself and this is something that conservative and uh, traditional Catholics have a problem with, and yet they pose as intellectuals, and they claim that they have the truth against Protestants or whomever as a detractor of the Church of Rome. And I don't think that they do when they're not willing to debate this issue. I've had so far one interview besides yours on the Occult Renaissance Church of Rome book, and that was by a couple of gentlemen. One of them was a Greek Orthodox priest in England who was invited into the conversation, as well as the host. And it was kind of hilarious in a way, because by the end of the interview, one of his maybe money sponsors or somebody who was behind the show had called him up and looked me up on Wikipedia, looked at my entry in Wikipedia, my Wikipedia entry in that online encyclopedia has for years been controlled by my enemies. And many people have protested this to no avail. I mean, it's a very distorted and jaundiced uh, article there. So his sponsor, whomever it was, a uh, sort of an eminence grise, looked this up. And by the end of the program, the guy was panicking about the fact that he had had me on it. So it was a 60-minute program at about 59 minutes I could see that he was sweating and getting shaky. To his credit, he put it up on YouTube for a few days, and then whoever was pressuring him told him to take it down. And that was unfortunate because there was more light than smoke that was emitted in the course of that interview. He was a fair and decent and inquisitive, conscientious interviewer. But that's now down the memory hole. I happen to preserve a copy of it. And so it's unfortunate that people, just like in my books, Judaism Discovered and Judaism Strange Gods, I've always had a challenge to an ordained Orthodox rabbi that would be willing to debate me in front of an audience where the whole debate would be videotaped. And we would agree that an uncensored version of the videotape would be issued. I've never had anyone take me up on that, even though one fairly important rabbi, for some reason, called me a Talmud Chacham, which means a Talmud scholar, and acknowledged the fact that he felt that I had some important knowledge about these esoteric rabbinic texts. So I'm. it's difficult to get this book around. It took us, let's see, it was published in 2017. And it's taken us five years to sell the 3,000 copies of the original. There's almost of the first edition, there's almost hardly anything left. And we're, we are now going into the second edition. But five years with 3,000 copies, I mean, Secret Societies and Twilight Language, well, Secret Societies has sold 10 or 15 times that. And uh, we went through twi we went through 2,000 copies of Twilight Language in three months. So you know, there's just this uh, resistance to it, and there's nothing I can do about it except thank people like you for giving me an opportunity to discuss these issues. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I want to thank you for, for doing the work that you've done to put indispensable book like this together. I mean, for po folks tuning in on the video, which, you know, hopefully this will be on YouTube. I can't imagine they'll leave it up for a few days. They're pretty tough to us on YouTube. But 700 pages of incredible work so definitely worth anyone's time who is interested in the 
cryptocracy and what they've done. But you know, you mentioned the Church of Jesus being usurped by this Kabbalistic element, this cryptotic cryptocratic force. When when was this you know officially done? What, or obviously not officially, but secretly. You know, what what time period are we looking at here? When did the the Church of Jesus fall? It ha- it it hasn't fallen, and it never will fall because the gates of hell, Jesus said, will never prevail against his church. However, where we confuse the Church of Rome, the buildings, the personnel with the Church of Jesus Christ that was Catholic and remains Catholic wherever uh, baptized Catholics join together who are true believers in uh, the church as it was constituted in the first three centuries A.D., that's the Catholic Church. And then when people usurp it and, and steal the throne, so to speak, then obviously that isn't. So I'm careful to distinguish between the Church of Rome and the ever-present eternal Church of Jesus Christ that was originally the Catholic the, the Roman Catholic faith. But to answer your question, this began in the late 15th century and then got firm purchase by the time of the two Medici popes, which is Leo X. And then you had the Pope Clement VII in the 1520s who dealt with Luther's, I'm sorry, not Luther, but Henry VIII's, uh, well, he also had to deal with Luther, but dealt with Henry VIII's divorce uh, from Catherine of Aragon or his attempted divorce. And again, like I mentioned with Pius V, the one notion that because he was the hero of the Battle of Lepanto, that absolves him of all the other crimes and transgressions that he committed. By the same token, with Clement VII, you have a case where he resisted pressure from Henry VIII to divorce him from his lawfully wedded wife, the Spanish princess Catherine of Aragon. But of course, there was another issue because her nephew was Charles V, of the Holy Roman Empire, who was the head of the most powerful army on earth, the Eastadors of Spain. So what eventually happened was, in spite of the fact that he upheld Catherine of Aragon's marriage, it was prophesied by an itinerant monk who was not recognized by the church. He was a layman. And it's in my book. There's a picture of him. I think it's the last photo in the photo section. And he had called out to Clement VII on Holy Thursday, Sodomita Bastarda, so in Italian, Sodomite Bastard, because of your sins, Rome will fall and be destroyed. And sure enough, not long after that, in marched the forces of Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, and they sacked Rome, and those prophecies came to pass, although it wasn't a total annihilation, but it would really create a tremendous violence and destruction in Rome. But he was another Medici, part of the, a scion of the banking family, which was heavily involved in usury, which Leo X had made possible in 1515 with one of his encyclicals, which for the first time in the history of the Catholic Church formally allowed the renting of money. And that really is the source of, in my opinion, as I pointed out in my book, Usury in Christendom, for the money power that so many of us bewail today Oh, we're ruled by money. Right. Well, where you have compound interest and you're trying to compete against the bankers who get compound interest, good luck. You're never going to do it, whether you're the greatest inventor or you're the best agriculturalist or whatever your industry is. It's a, as Dante said in, in his Inferno, in his Canto, he said in Canto 11, 
that this was an artificial, sterile way of tricking nature into producing something. And so that was really very revolutionary for this to occur under the watch of Leo X. And slowly, the Kabbalistic doctrines were also infiltrating. And what happened was you had Pfefferkorn was a, a Judaic convert to the true Catholic Church, and he began to sound the alarm about the disciples of Pico della Mirandola, who died young and was deceased at this time by the 1520s. And you had Johannes Reuchlin, who was the Catholic Kabbalist, believe it or not, who was putting forth a Christian Catholic Kabbalah, claiming that, and this was picked up later on by Eliphas Levy, who's famous in the occult for his image, and I'm sure you're familiar with it, of Baphomet, the, the, the breasted, bearded hermaphrodite who presides over the occult, and it's been reprinted in countless magical books and so forth. And, and he put his finger on the essence of this, and the, the essence of the Kabbalistic doctrine, which was infiltrating the church at this time, which the Judaic convert Pfefferkorn opposed, and which Johannes Reuchlin, supposedly the Orthodox Catholic, was advancing. And that is that the devil is a morally neutral force, and they identified that force with the Holy Spirit and also with the goddess, with the Shekinah. And this is the madness of the esoteric Renaissance papal gnosis. This was the secret revealed to initiates in Rome's hierarchy, and Levy, in the 19th century, enjoyed the protection of the Church of Rome, of Pope Pius IX, who, again, conservative and traditional Catholics regard as just a fount of orthodoxy against all. He was Pius IX's hierarchy, uh, protected Levy against all interference and all charges of demonism and heresy. So Levy's task was to win the occult for papalism. So this was an ongoing project. And in the case of Reuchlin, he actually won against Pfefferkorn. So here's this wonderful Judaic man who had converted to Catholicism. He understood the threat that the Talmud and the Kabbalah claim put forth. After all, the doctrine is, is that the church is based on the Bible and tradition derived from the Bible, but nothing can contradict the Bible. And here, and for, of course, for Protestants, this would really be an issue because of their doctrine of sola scriptura, the Bible alone, tradition not allowed. And the Kabbalah and, and the Talmud are occult traditions, very blatant, flagrant ones. And so here's Pfefferkorn sounding the alarm as a former insider inside Judaism. He knew that this was that the Kabbalah and the Talmud were not the benign Christian-friendly text that Reuchlin was trying to say they were, and yet Reuchlin won that argument. He was exonerated and held aloft, and then his poison infiltrated the various Catholic universities, and Pfefferkorn was discredited. And what we have out of this, Mark, is the coming of Rosicrucianism, because the alchemical texts that came forward in the early 1600s were used to mock those in the church who were enemies of the Kabbalah and enemies of these occult doctrines. And that became very fashionable in the elite world, elite intellectual world, that it was considered retrograde and Neanderthal to be opposed to the Kabbalah and the Talmud. Of course, a lot of this is based on ignorance because it took a long time for the actual texts of the Kabbalah, the Zohar in particular, 
to be translated into vernacular languages in Europe so people could study them. And of course, I always recommend Daniel Matt's translation from Stanford University. He did a magnificent job on seven volumes of the Zohar, and they're freely available, uncensored, after being hidden away for so long. And why is that? Because we're in the revelation of the method era, where people are so burned out by alchemical processing in the society of the spectacle, that it doesn't matter anymore when these horrible evils are revealed to us, and these dreadful doctrines in these books, and we shrug our shoulders in apathy and and paralysis, which this alchemical process has done to us. It's our fault, but we've been gone through it. And therefore, this is the time to reveal these things in this revelation of the method time. Right, and yeah, here we are getting into it, and at full speed ahead. I, I love this, and it's, it's very elucidating, you know. People- uh, I wanted to ask you, Mark, was there any particular section of the book that you found more interesting than others, or not necessarily you enjoyed the whole thing? I enjoyed the whole thing. I would say I liked Pope Alexander's Wizard. That chapter was about where I left off. And I'd like for you to explain a little bit for the listeners who want to pick this book up or maybe don't know why they should pick this book up, why Pope Alexander is such an interesting figure to focus on. Yes. Oh, that's a good question. So what what it is, is, is there were many honorable Catholics who were coming out at this time who were sounding the alarm about what I call the Neoplatonic Hermetic Kabbalistic conspiracy. All those elements are, part, are components of this. The Neoplatonism, which revived the doctrines of Plato. I've never understood how people who advocate free, freedom and reason in Western civilization have somehow valorized Plato, who was really an apologist for dictatorship. And so Neoplatonism came along with the idea of revolt against material creation and spiritualized creation, so that whereas God in the book of Genesis says he looked upon his creation and called it good, and the Neoplatonists look on it at the very least as highly problematic, if not actually a product of the operating engineer of the universe, the so-called Demiurgus. But I won't go too far into Neoplatonism. And then there's Hermeticism. The mythical character of Hermes Trismegistus, Hermes thrice blessed, was very big in this era that we're discussing. And he was actually believed at that time to be an actual historical figure. But later on, it was revealed that he was a legendary character but what he is, is it's is a, a, a person, an imaginary person who carried symbolic import. And what that import was, is incorporating and assimilating the cult doctrines of ancient Egypt into the West. That's really when you when you see the word hermetic and hermeticism, you know that the pharaonic theology of the state religion of Egypt was now being incorporated. And then, of course, there's the Kabbalah. So against that arose people like I I mentioned earlier, Girolamo Savant, who was a preacher of the Dominican order, and he was battling these occult forces. And there were others as well. Meanwhile, you've got the Spaniard. Alexander VI was from Spain, not from Italy, the Borgia Pope. And he was very much threatened by Savannah. One of the problems with Florence was that it was a capital of sodomy. And that was something that was hard to hide. We've discussed earlier in the broadcast how much of this was concealed from the the common in-the-pew Catholics. 
But when you have sodomy at the degree in which it was being carried on under the Borgia Pope, uh, then it's rather difficult to hide. And the other factor was the rise of the money power under the Medici, the the great bankers who were at this time only rivaled by the Fugger uh, banking dynasty in Germany at that time. And a lot of this will come on later when the Fuggers are in charge of the sale of the indulgences, which was a major bone of contention for Martin Luther. And it will actually be the Roman Catholic Fugger Bank which was a depository for all that money, and then they got a cut of it before it was funneled on to Rome. So there's many connections here. <clears throat> so Savonarola's contest with Alexander VI was he was condemning usury and he was condemning the sodomy. And much of it, by the way, forced rape of young men by older men. And this was being institutionalized in bordellos around Florence. And this was supposed to be the leading Catholic city after Rome. So you can see the level of corruption. And it's no surprise that the Protestant Reformation arose just a few decades later in the face of this type of corruption. And so Savonarola's, I'll quote from the book on page 225, Savonarola's leading Florentine enemies needed all the help they could summon to get the Florence they longed for so as to bring back carnival, gambling, horse races, untroubled anal sex. And Alexander was the natural and obvious prince to turn to for help. Now they're referring to the pontiff as a prince, but he's a prince of the church. Savonarola was threatened by the Pope's agent with excommunication for disobedience. And this this was a threat which was backed up by both the banking families in Florence and, and the hierarchy. So Alexander was determined to crush Savonarola, but on many occasions he was thwarted by one of the great cardinals of, of that time, Orthodox Cardinal Oliverio Carafa, who was in sympathy with Savonarola. But anyway, in the end, by 1497, uh, Savonarola was excommunicated, and then the kind of gangs that were operating, a kind of a mafia, really, that was operating in, in there in Florence, was able to overthrow Savonarola's rule. And many of the papists today see in Savonarola's defiance of this Borgia Pope an unpardonable transgression that merited, or at least understandably, led to the fires that he was eventually consigned to. Now, I define papism as the heresy of the ultramontane who place a man on a throne above the salvation of souls or the preaching of truth. And I'd like to just digress momentarily to state that the concept of papal infallibility, which I believe is very destructive of the Catholic Church, and it's an innovation. I mean, people say they're traditional Catholics today. They're largely talking about that they're 19th century Catholics. They enthrone Pius IX, the protector of Slevi, Leo X, and Pius X. And that's sort of the church that they built their religion on. And, well, the church existed for 1,800 years before that, and papal infallibility is largely a result of the last few hundred years. The problem with that, and something I like to point out, is Joseph de Maestra, an alleged former Freemason, but I don't think he actually ever left the lodge, was a key person in pushing papal infallibility on Catholics. And because they knew, or at least they had a strong sense, that they would be able to put one of their own Masonic men on the throne of St. Peter and thereby destroy the church. And so here, Mark, I'd like to point out that where 
Kabbalah appeared publicly, okay, where it appeared in publicly was under the under the regime of John Paul II. Because with John Paul II, you had the emergence of Henry de Lubac, and I don't expect people to know about him. We've, for the first time, our book translated from the French, he wrote a book about Pico della Mirandola. But if you talk to conservative right-wing Catholics today, they think Henry de Lubac was a great man because St. John Paul II rehabilitated him. But anyway, here comes the Kabbalah now, exoterically emerging in public, again, for the revelation of the method reasons that we talked about earlier in terms of the Kabbalah now being openly published uh, by Stanford University Press. Here we have the Kabbalah actually being, uh, or a Kabbalist rather, actually being promoted inside the Church of Rome publicly. And it's not an issue for people. And so Delube is as part of this current and this is what this is the a challenge that I throw to traditional Catholics and conservative Catholics is have you investigated the fact that the church never condemned the Kabbalah? Have you asked yourselves why Kabbalism has enjoyed a a a a special protection inside the church and they can't answer that. I mean there's a tremendous amount of ignorance about this. And uh, I had hoped that the 723 pages of my book would help to dispel some of that ignorance. But, but thus far, you know, I, but hope springs, hope springs eternally. And, and I, you know, I should also say that the rot is actually older than the Renaissance. When you look at St. Francis of Assisi, who they say is the most popular Catholic saint among non-Catholics, because he's considered an environmental saint and so forth, which is fine. He, he was an environmentalist, but he was also someone who despised the money power. And he always pointed his finger at the wealth and riches of the church. And then he was reduced to, in the order that he founded, the Capuchin order that he founded, he was reduced to practically the status of a layman as papal forces took control of the Franciscans and nullified much of his stand against the money power. And there was one faction of the Franciscans called the Spirituals, who after the death of Francis kept up his battle against the money power, they ended up being hounded and murdered by the papacy. And these were Catholics, not Protestants. So this is something to remember that the rod is a lot older. In fact, Boniface VIII, a medieval pope, was the one who issued the dreadfully megalomaniac statement that it is necessary for the salvation of all people that they be under the dominion of the Pope of Rome. Can you imagine? Where is this in the gospel? You know, I mean, no, it, it, it's it's utterly wrong. And in and the infallibility thing, they put their own men on the papacy, beginning at the very least with Paul VI, and they're very worried about the moral and ethical conduct and theology of these men, so they've canonized every one of them. Every single one of these Vatican II popes are now saints, and before that, other than Pope Pius X, there hadn't been a, a pope who was named a saint for 300 years. All of a sudden, in the 1960s, we produced, you know, three sainted popes. Well, because that canonization process is allegedly infallible, it's a way of ensuring that those heretical popes can't be accused of heresy, because after all, they've been named saints. But that's when, beginning in the 1960s, when this evil, the, the concealment was dropped because people have been so heavily processed by now, and more and more you could see the open hand of this, and we're really seeing it under the current pontificate 
of, of Pope Francis, even though he's presented as a crusader against money and these other things. But this is this is a guy who is completely out of line with any semblance of Catholic theology. Mm, and and hence the phrase which you use in your book, a cult heretic, which maybe needs a little bit of explaining because it might not be totally understandable. It's not someone who's a heretic to the occult. It's someone who's rather a hidden heretic posing as a true believer, correct? Right. And I'm all for heresy when it comes to being a, a heretic towards Obama and Trump <laughs> and George Bush and Biden. You know, I, right. I, I'm a heretic. You know, I'm a Henry. I like to think in the line of Henry David Thoreau, even though I don't agree with everything Thoreau did, but he spent that night in jail rather than support the Mexican-American war. And, you know, he's a famous dissident. And that's really, to me, the spirit of America, Benjamin Tucker and other people like that. So heresy in and of itself is not necessarily a problem. Where it becomes a problem is, is where a truth which has been established for those who subscribe to a particular set of beliefs. In other words, people come along and say, I am loyal to the Bible. I am loyal to the church that Jesus Christ founded. I am loyal to that early church. But then they blatantly contradict it by making statements, whether it's Gnostic, Neoplatonic, or whatever, that undercut and tend to show that they don't really believe what they're saying. They're chameleons who have born into the bowels of the church so that you and I, who were so-called cradle Catholics, born Catholics, raised Catholics, and then had that had the church stolen away from us. I never left the Catholic church. I call it the Robert church, that that, that church was stolen away from us. When I was a kid growing up, some of the finest people that I knew, and I, I grew up in a largely Catholic town. I don't think that I met a Protestant until I was about eight years old. But you know, the, the Catholic people that I knew, they were just fine people. They had high morality. I mean, we had some, we had, our community was Irish American and Italian American. You know, they didn't get a well, get along that well, but they bore with one another. And we had some Italian American gamblers and, you know, people that crossed the line in various ways and so forth and so forth. And they certainly weren't angels by any means. But what I'm talking about is the general tone of the community was very high. It was very good. And that, that to me is a tribute to the, the parish priests who stayed apart from this wickedness and this iniquity and still managed to teach the catechism to people so they'd have a knowledge of their faith. But once, I remember my friend Sully back in upstate New York where I'm from, he was probably the best Catholic kid I knew. And then when all of a sudden the Latin Tridentine Mass, and it isn't so much that the Mass is in Latin, the issue is that it was a Mass of sacrifice, and, and that was the, the principle of it. When that mass was dropped all of a sudden, and indeed outlawed, as it had been outlawed under Queen Elizabeth I, the Protestant heresy arc, a lot of people started to lose their faith because they said, how can the church betray its own essence, which is going on to this day? I mean, the people from from Pope Francis on down, it's very clear that the people who are operating the Catholic Church today hate the Catholic Church and despise it. For example, I think about 40 years ago or 30 years ago, about 98% of Latin America was Catholic. And today, because of all these betrayals and this subversion, I think it's somewhere around 50%. And, and the other 
a large portion of the ones who have left have gone into charismatic Pentecostalism because they wanted to change their lives. They wanted a, 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 a change in, in their basic spirituality. And when you're simply adopting the ways of the world rather than being countercultural, to be a follower of Jesus Christ is to be countercultural. I mean, when the so-called Jesus freaks came in the 1970s, they were actually following in the line of the original Jesus freaks, meaning no disrespect, who followed Christ originally because they were castigated and despised and so forth. And so if we're not countercultural, we're nothing. And what is Pope Francis? He's He looks at what the media and what the current trends are on the left and copies them and makes the church more and more worldly. Well, the Latin Americans, they weren't going to put up with it. They need to get their husband off alcohol. The husband needs to get his wife away from adultery or whatever the case may be and find a faith that will actually armor us and give us the strength to, to fight the tempta- and face the temptations of the modern world. So They don't care. They still call it the new evangelism. They've decided that they're not going to attempt to convert any Judaic people. And yet that was the whole initial mission of Jesus Christ, you know, that he came into the world to save his own people. He originally, he said, go nowhere among, I, I'm, I've come only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And now since Pope John Paul II onward, they've said, no, the house of Israel already has their own faith. They're saved by their race. You know, all of these things, I don't mean to belabor these points for your listeners. Our theme is the occult here, but all of these things are clear evidence that these are not Catholic people. They're enemies of the church in control. And the occult heretics, what I mean to say is, the occult being anything that's hidden, is there is this sub-rose of faction which worked its way through the church. And it really never, once Kabbalah got firm purchase inside the church beginning in the 16th century, I say firm purchase now in there, it's never been dislodged by any pontiff. It's the same thing with usury. Pope Leo XIII, when he wrote his encyclical Rerum Novarum, which in many ways is a fine encyclical on behalf of the working man, but it's all symptomatic. It doesn't deal with the core issue of the renting of money as being the most insidious factor in the rise of the money power. And some Austrian intellectuals, Catholic intellectuals, approached him and said, you're writing Rerum Novarum. This is an opportunity to overcome usury, to restore the church's initial forbidding of usury. He wouldn't do it. He adamantly refused to do it because the money power was in there. And I hate to make a scapegoat of the Rothschild banking dynasty. You know, it's become sort of a a fixation of the right wing, the Rothschild bankers. My problem with that is they overlook that when the Rothschilds were just rag pickers or pawnbrokers, it was the Catholic and Protestant banking houses that were initiating usury in the world. And that's all overlooked while the Rothschilds get all the blame. Now, on the other hand, to a certain degree, the Rothschilds, especially when Disraeli became prime minister of Great Britain, certainly did have a baleful and ominous influence on many governments, but we have to put it in context. Anyway, at the time Leo XIII was writing that encyclical, the Vatican was in hock to Rothschild bankers. They had taken out large loans. So I don't think Leo XIII, for all his alleged good intentions and his orthodoxy, as conservative and traditional Catholics claim, he wasn't willing to do that. Well, then, why did God give you the power to be the Pope of Rome? With having this tremendous power, the people must obey you. Here was your opportunity to do endless good and and 
restricting the money power and you don't do it. And so these are the things that uh, that just rub me wrong in this particular case and, and our prima facie evidence of this occult influence. The same thing with the Kabbalah. It was untouchable. Now, there are many high-sounding platitudinous rhetoric against usury in the Catholic Church from all these popes, from, you know, from Leo X onward. Oh, it's a terrible thing and we're opposed to it. And there's always a loophole that they provide so that it can be practiced. And that was even true of the Code of Canon Law in 1917, which was actually formed by Pope St. Pius X and then uh, was promulgated by the following Pope. And that's a mess as well. So you really can see the footprints of the occult here. For me, if uh, someone is saying they're following Christ, but at the same time they're protecting the Kabbalah, they're following uh, Christ who said in Luke chapter 6, lend, expecting nothing in return, and they've created an entire financial system based on getting something in return for loans and financializing the entire economy. And in other words, the way, the way to riches is to be in charge of a hedge fund, not to be the best farmer in America and using organic farming methods. no. Get into a hedge fund. Well, that's the financialization. That's what I'm a free enterprise advocate, but I'm not a capitalist because capitalism implies financialization. Capital, meaning money, will be supreme in the manipulation of capital. If we had a true Catholic church, none of those things would be possible among Catholics today. A Catholic who practiced usury would have to give it up. The renting of money would have to give it up. A Catholic who was involved in the occult would have to give it up, not just Freemasonry, which was a rival of the Church of Rome, but comes out of the Church of Rome. Freemasonry was born from Rosicrucianism. Rosicrucianism was born from the Kabbalah of Pico della Mirandola and Johannes Reuchlin. People don't see these connections. Wow. And you spend a great deal of time comparatively talking about Reuchlin, and almost 100 pages are devoted to that chapter can you tell us more about Reuchlin and his revolution? He was—he seems to be the guy who, who you know, facilitated a lot of this, huh? Yes. And, you know, Leo X is on record as having silenced Reuchlin. And this was a farce, another token gesture intended for consumption by pious believers in the integrity of the Pope. The fact of the matter is that Reuchlin was certainly never silenced. In the last years of his life, Reuchlin was a very vocal and high-profile professor at the Catholic University of Tubenian. More significantly, he and the occult Catholic cabal were victorious. A golden age of Talmud publishing and Kabbalah publishing commenced in Catholic Europe thanks to their efforts. So while the Vatican launched a draconian crackdown on Protestant books, an edition of the complete Talmud is being published by the printing house of Bomberg, with papal sanction. And I mean, that's really a tip off. So you have Tyndale publishing his own Bible and he gets burned at the stake for doing that. Meanwhile, the Pope is involved in publishing the Talmud, the Pope himself in publishing the Talmud. And that's not an issue for these Catholics. No, Agidio Avertibo permitted the establishment of a Hebrew press at Rome, and he officially endorsed Daniel Bomberg's project to print a complete edition of the Talmud. And you know, Reuchlin is at the heart of this. Reuchlin is, he's, he's to me what some of the New Age hippies pose as today, you know, oh, I'm ultra cool, and I couldn't possibly 
go along with saying a rosary or or going to a Tridentine mass or believing in the New Testament. You know, it's just not cool. Uh, I'm the sophisticated bohemian hipster. You know, that's really what Roycklin, you know, people like that, you know, I want to strangle them, believe me. I, the hippie hypocrisy that I ran into in the 1970s. I mean, I'm sure I'm a human being. I'm sure I've been guilty of hypocrisy. I don't mean to portray myself as holier than thou, but it, it just seemed to be institutionalized among, I remember a bus was coming from the Watkins Glen Festival, which was three times as big as Woodstock, but doesn't get the publicity. And it's in, there's a, a section in my book, Twilight Language, about it. I was actually present for that. 600,000 people gathered, the largest assembly in the history of America. No arrests, no crimes committed. It's interesting. It's an anomaly. How do we account for it? So a bus, a bus of hippies, I guess you would call them, had lingered at, at Watkins Glen. I went back home after it ended, and it came into my hometown on this bus, and this guru-type guy got out of the bus, and he announced when he landed on the sidewalk there, he said, we are the people with no secrets. And I thought to myself, you know, I actually said a swear word, but I'll just use the initials. I said, BS, you know, <laughs> I mean, come on, you know, this utopian notion that we're going to create this uh, thelemic humankind, you know, well, no, original sin always uh, interferes with that. And so uh, uh, surrounding Pfefferkorn was the same thing. And there was a book that came on later, not 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 co-equivalent with the controversy about Roycklin. I'm sorry, I said Pfefferkorn earlier. I meant Roycklin. But with the controversy around resistance to Rosicrucianism, which came out of, of Catholic Kabbalism. And that's very important. The protection of Rosicrucianism was key to the occult cryptocracy. It had to survive. And it had to get this alchemical processing into the upper echelon now, not only of the Church of Rome, which it had captured, but also inside Protestantism. And, and this is exactly what happened. And so the conservative resistance to Rosicrucianism was opposed by an anonymous pamphlet, we now know who wrote it, called The Letters of Obscure Men. And it had that appeal to the arrogant, self-satisfied, self-righteous, you could almost say leftist-type intellectuals, although I hate to use the seating arrangement of the 1789 French National Assembly, because right-wing and left-wing don't really apply here. The right can be just as obnoxious and vainglorious. Look at Donald Trump. But in the case of this, you had the letters of obscure men using a very high level of Latin to show that they were highly educated and portraying everyone who was opposed to the nascent Rosicrucianism that was arising as a backward, uneducated, semi-literate type of person. That mechanism is often used right up until today. The notion that you know people who are into the esoteric doctrines and so forth behind the scenes are really the ones who are the intellectual elite. And that was used against in favor of Roycklin, and it was used in that book, Letters of Obscure Men. There's a section in the Occult Renaissance Church of Rome on Letters of Obscure Men. And then in Twilight Language, I reproduce a hermaphroditic image there of a being that has female and male genitals. So it's a engraving of this ultimate alchemical being possessed of female and, and male genitals. And undoubtedly, the trans movement is undoubtedly, in my view, headed towards a situation where 
they could manipulate the genes of humanity and actually create a being like that. But this was, again, forecast in the 1600s. So the idea that this, that for example, the trans movement is brand new or you know, it, it's it's only 30 or 40 years old, or it comes out of the gay liberation movement, even though many les there's now lesbian women who are arguing strongly against the trans movement in the sense that they want to be, to have their privacy as women and their status as women not invaded by female impersonators. I know those are politically correct, incorrect words, and you and I could be canceled for me articulating them, but I'm sorry, that's the reality, okay? Right. And so in that particular case, this is the origin date is in the 1600s. Mm-hmm. And so my point is, is Roycklin and his antagonist, Pfefferkorn, Pfefferkorn was illegitimately discredited by virtue of basically a kind of intellectual arrogance. And we all have to guard against that because the sense that I want to be in on the fashion trend. You know, I remember once everybody had long hair in the 1970s, I went to a barber school, you know, where they don't give you a very good haircut. You know, it was a $2 haircut at the barber school because the kids needed to practice and they cut my hair, you know, as short as could be. And after that, I wore a suit and tie, no bell bottoms, no boots, no long hair, because I thought all these conformists have long, you'd have to be a child of the 70s to know what I'm talking about, because now we're back to where long hair actually maybe is something of an issue in the corporate world. I don't know, or maybe it doesn't matter anymore. But, you know, originally long hair was a sign that people were, you know, nonconformists or whatever. And I'm not that much into judging people by appearances or anything else. I mean, Actually, many classical music aficionados were always called long hairs, you know, and they were as conservative as could be. But anyhow, I, I went against the grain with that, and I, I bought vintage suits, wore a suit and tie, had short hair. I'll tell you, a lot more girls wanted to talk to me. I remember I was at a bus station going to see a lady friend up in Oswego, and I was at the Syracuse bus station, and more than one woman came up to me, wanted to know what was up with the short hair and the suit I was wearing and everything. Cause there was nobody in the bus station that didn't have a set of sideburns and hair to their shoulders and bell bottoms and the whole thing. But I digress. So where were we? You'll have to bring me back to where we should be. Well, you're describing, you know, thoroughly how we've been chemically processed to the point of being conformists. And, you know, I was kind of cooking up a question as you were explaining all that. You know, how far does this process go back? I mean, clearly there are Egyptian pharaonic elements to it, and it seems like the Church of Rome has been usurped to become somewhat of a continuation of this. Yes, that yes, I would agree with that absolutely, and that's a good point. We're actually talking about the very first, the Hermetic sense of the theology of Egypt, which is pyramidal. So it's always one person at the top, and then humanity below it. And I think that um, what makes what distinguishes the Bible in such an interesting fashion in terms of how different it is from the eternal pagan psychodrama. Okay, so the notion is is that people try to say, oh, no, the, the Bible is pagan, too, and has all these pagan antecedents and everything. Well, let's let's examine the text. For example, when David, King David, had done what he did to Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, he committed adultery with Bathsheba, and he has Uriah killed, okay? So 
what happens? He's now a corrupt individual. And the prophet Nathan is in his court. So Nathan says to King David, I want to talk to you. I want to tell you a story about a very evil man. And King David said, oh, well, I, I, I want to be alerted to such evil personages. personages." And he says, there was a man who took advantage of people, who tricked people, and who killed people. And he used his high office to do that. And David said, well, where is this man? Let me find him so I can punish him. And Nathan turns to him and he says, it's you. It's you. So David did not have Nathan beheaded. He did not have Nathan destroyed. He actually credited Nathan with holding a mirror up to him for his sins and transgressions. Anywhere else in the Middle East at that time, if you had stood up to an all-powerful monarch or king, you'd be killed because they would have felt that they had to do that in order to maintain their cachet over their followers to show that they were tough guys and, and that they weren't going to allow the loss of face that had happened as a result of this. And, you know, the Bible is 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 interesting for that. And also, when you look at 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, which is where we're introduced to King David, we see all of the contradictions problems and difficulties behind the scenes. I mean, what's going on with King Saul? What's going on with King David's two evil sons? He had two evil sons. It was only Solomon later on who who carried the mantle for a while, and then Solomon became corrupt with, what, 700 wives? So it's showing it's showing the dirty laundry of the kings of Israel. And it's also, for example, in Genesis 38, where we see Judah from which the word Judean comes, from which the word Jew comes. And and he's mixed up with Tamar, an alleged Canaanite, thinks she's a prostitute, has sex with her, and from that illicit union comes the direct lineage of Jesus Christ. And in the pagan world, no, you would have that would all be a, a wonderful lineage an astonishing, powerful lineage of people. And here are all of these very human sides and dimensions to the Bible, which sets it, in my view, outside the eternal pagan psychodrama as something that has the unique stamp of the personal God. Yahweh is a personal God. And, you know, I use the name Yahweh, which is a very sacred name. I would never use it in any uh, light, light manner. But that name is thousands of times mentioned in the Old Testament, Y-H-W-H, and we believe the pronunciation is Yahweh. But uh, due to the rabbinic proscription in the Mishnah, which is the first major book of the Talmud, the Babylonian Talmud consists of the Mishnah and the Gemara. In the Mishnah, it says the name can only be pronounced once in the Holy of Holies by the high priest. But that's not what God said in the Old Testament. He said, Yahweh is my name. My people will be known by Yahweh. This is my name. And so the King James Bible and almost all subsequent translators of the Hebrew Old Testament, in fear of what the rabbis said, in subjection to it, have used a title of God. If you, Mark, are a captain in the army and I introduce you to my friends and they say, what's his name? And I say, oh, his name is Captain. That's not your name. Your name is Mark. So to refer to Yahweh as the Lord, that's his title. But his personal name is Yahweh, which means I am who am. I am the eternal. That's what it literally means in Hebrew. And that's been crushed out. 
And the church has cooperated with that. Most most recently, Pope Benedict XVI, before he resigned his office, actually published a statement saying we're no longer going to allow Yahweh to be used in these different hymns and and, and Catholic liturgy. What? Where are you getting that? Thousands of times it's in the Bible. Yahweh himself commands that we will use the name. But what's interesting, perhaps, to your listeners is, is that having pushed Yahweh into this forbidden corner in the occult, part of the so-called white magic of the occult is based on the manipulation and use of Yahweh's name. So it went from the intention of God that it would be carefully and reverently used in our prayers and in our liturgy to being stamped out, and then the occult takes it because now it has what? It has the aura of forbidden fruit around it, that whole dimension of it, and says, yes, in our magic, we'll use this name, and it gives us power. The Christians don't have that power, but we have it. We'll draw a circle on the floor here, and we'll bring in these angelic entities, as Dr. John D. claimed that he was doing. Yeah, it's a a fake thing. Even, Even Maharishi Mahesh Yogi's top guy in America, Charlie Lutz, I used to attend his lectures in Santa Monica, California, in the early, mid 1980s. And I'll never forget, wherever else he was coming from, I mean, even a broken clock is correct twice a day, wherever else Charlie was coming from, he was talking that about channeling at that time, which was very big. People were going to, new age kids were going to, in fact, I had a friend who was going to a channeler, and this goes all the way back to the spiritualist religion, which came to the fore in the 19th century, again, in my book, Twilight Language, because it happened on the 42nd degree of North Parallel Latitude. And Charlie was asked about this, and he said, You know those spirits that are being channeled, he said, they never have been born, and they never will be born, and they hate us, they envy us, which is basically a description of the demons of hell and Satan himself. They envy us, and so they're out to entrap and drain humanity, and so when you're talking to these spirits, you're talking to your enemies, and all of these spirits that are labeled as angelic, from, from John D. doing it, the astrologer royal of Queen Elizabeth I onward, they're trafficking in demons, but they call them angelic. All magic, when it all magic is an attempt to overcome nature. That's what it is. Now, maybe someone else will say, well, I know about the folk medicine of the ayahuasca plant. That's not that's not magic. God put the ayahuasca plant on the earth for a reason. It's medicine, okay? It's not to be used as a a recreational drug or without reverence. It's for people who have mental illness and have to overcome it. And when they overcome it, they stop using the ayahuasca. It's one of God's herbs that he put on this earth in the book of Genesis. Let's not call that magic because it isn't. It's God's natural world. The pharmaceutical industry would like us to think there's something diabolical about it, but there isn't. But what, where you are contravening nature, where you are going against nature, which is what this whole current trans movement really is, and we are, we are being transported from the natural world to an utterly unnatural world where you're supposed to take uh, carcinogenic hormone drugs and have mastectomies and hysterectomies to turn yourself into a man, okay? That is goes all the way back to the predictions that John D made and you know he's a he's central to my own study of the occult in terms of a figure 
who was a prophet of these things because he was a prophet of the reign of dead matter. He predicted that there would come a time when dead matter ruled over humanity. And he looked forward to the robot, the robotic digital age, and he actually saw some elements of that. And where we're entering into that world, leaving the natural for the unnatural, we're on very thin ice and we're in grave danger. And what I can't understand about people on the left is they're deeply invested in organic agriculture and eating the very best organic food and natural ways of growing things. And then at the same time, there's a disconnect between that and their philosophy about sexuality and other things along those lines. It, to me, it's an, a symptom of a grave psychic and spiritual uh, disturbance. Wow. Well said. And that's a great way to, to you know, point at the hypocrisy of it all, because you're absolutely right. How can they claim to, to want to be in an organic environment, yet they themselves are, you know, <laughs> objecting to the natural order of things? you know, with their own organism. They, they want, you know, their corn and squash to be perfectly natural, but they themselves are, are, are exempt from those rules. It's, it's really asinine, if you ask me. Yeah. I agree. Absolutely. Well, when we look at, when we look at Count Giovanni Pico della Mirandola and what he inspired, you know, so many of these folks who we just described, you know, will will point to a guy like Giordano Bruno and say, "Oh, look at this man! You know, wasn't he a martyr for science? He was so brilliant, and he was also an occultist. So that must mean that this occult stuff has all of these, you know, possibilities to make you, you know, a brilliant scientist." And and it it really doesn't dawn on any of them that the same people that burned Bruno at the stake were practicing exactly what he was condemned for, occultism. I think I thank you so much for bringing that up because, boy, is that ever important. It's the same thing done when I try to point out the occult roots of Hitler. <clears throat> and there are Hitler fans who will say, well, he closed the Masonic temples down and he shut down various occult agencies in Germany and so forth. And, and again, the argument, no, Rome couldn't have been a cult because they burned Bruno at, at the stake. Well, what people don't realize is, you know, when Ford is trying to crush the competition from Toyota, they're both in the car business. They both love automobiles. None of them could be said to be anti-automobile, but they are rivals for who's going to take control of the sale of those automobiles. Hitler was an occultist who was a rival of Masonic occultists. Therefore, he crushed out his rivals. He didn't crush the occult. And by the same token, Bruno's crime in the eyes of the papacy is, whereas these occultists you and I have been discussing here, like Pico and the others, they were all in submission to the papacy. Bruno wasn't. That was the sole distinguishing factor. The papacy used Bruno's experiments as a cover story for why he was executed. He was executed because he was one of the few Catholic occultists that said, I dispense with the papacy. It's, it's, it's holding back our research because obviously there was a timetable that the cult institution inside Rome wanted to move the hierarchy along with. They didn't want to go too rapidly for fear that they would be exposed at a time when people were not alchemically processed. The average peasant or parish priest at that time would have hanged these people if they knew what was going on. 
Whereas Bruno was on a different timetable, and he also felt that it was necessary to abandon the papacy, whereas the cryptocracy understood that the papacy had such resources in terms of personnel, power, and money. Why not use that, which is exactly what they did, a spectacular effect. So people who are saying that, that you know, Bruno was burned, he was an occult heretic, the, the Catholic Church was very conservative, that's why he was burned. You know, to me, they're just patsies, they're just victims of the indoctrination, and they don't really see what's at work behind the scenes. And I think in some cases, Mark, they don't want to see. I think that in some cases, it's willful ignorance. People just don't trouble me with the facts, you know, and I, I find, again, perhaps I put too much onus on alchemical processing. So let me put it this way. I see that we're losing our humanity for whatever reason in this time. We're becoming dehumanized. We're being bestialized. And it's really the fully human person who wants a mirror held out to, up to their own foibles and pretensions. It's the really human person who wants to be curious about every aspect of human knowledge. The advancement of learning is supposed to be what the Internet was founded for. And yet we see all the interdictions now and how much the Internet has been captured by cancel culture and people who want to label their rivals, as Hitler and Rome did, as disinformation spouters, while they themselves are the founts of truth. It's obvious that in the free marketplace of ideas, where ideas are clashing, the other person will call their enemies demons and devils and, and, and so forth. And what we really need is this open-minded pursuit of information and the truth. And it's been interdicted for a long time. And, and the case of Bruno, in terms of how much I mean, if really people want to use a, a martyr, it should be Savonarola. And that's where I would point uh, honest people who have been exploring the occult and maybe have not yet been uh, lost their souls to it. Uh, look into the case of Savonarola and what a noble and honorable person he was. He gave his life in order to have humanity have freedom, especially at a time of Medici tyranny in Florence that was overwhelmingly suffocating. I mean, it was almost Soviet in its tyrannical control. But of course, Savonarola is a footnote, and uh, Bruno is uh, the main martyr. And of course, if you go to Rome, there in the Campo di Fiori is the nominous statue of Bruno staring down from the alleged site where he was burned, I, I say alleged, I don't, I'm not doubting that he was burned. I'm not certain we know exactly where it was. Perhaps they do. And that's an ominous, ominous thing to see there. And that was obviously put up by the Masonic occult when they were rivals of, of Rome, at least ostensibly. But again, they're forgetting their origins if they think they were rivals right from the inception, because from Rosicrucianism came Freemasonry. And of course, People have asked me, define Freemasonry in one sentence. Kabbalah for the Gentiles. That's what it is. And so who rehabilitated and energized and propelled Kabbalah into the Western world? Well, we know who that was. So on what basis is the enmity between Freemasons and Catholics? It's the enmity between a father and a son. Right. Wow. Yeah. And, and I actually just had a conversation with someone who is a very interesting researcher. I would say, you know, you would have to review their work and, you know, before I, I give you my opinion, but 
they mention Rosicrucianism as uh, being sort of like a, a, a role-playing, a live-action role-playing, which could make sense in this context, seeing as it was really just a vehicle to set up what you put a Kabbalah for the Gentiles. And, and you do make a point to, to show that it's been in the rabbinical text that there are humans and then there are what they consider subhumans. And, and I would imagine that, you know, this control cryptocracy considers themselves to be, you know, above even those two categories, right? Yeah, I mean, the Cambridge Apostles, which was a, an occult group from which many Soviet spies later came traitors. Yeah, they had an idea that they were the reality and the people who were not members of the Cambridge Apostles were the phenomenon. And so, you know, inside esoteric, some aspects of esoteric Kabbalah, is the idea, well, and also Talmudism, Schnur Zalman of Laiety, which is a branch of the Hasidic people, you have the idea that we are, that non-Judaic people are nefesh deficient. N-E-F-E-S-H is the word for soul. So rather than, you know, to be technically accurate, I'd rather not say they regard us in all respects as subhuman, but our souls are deficient. Now, Schnur Zalman of Laiety, and why is he important? Well, he's the founder of Chabad Lubavitch, which is the most politically connected and powerful branch of Talmudic Judaism in both Russia, believe it or not, allied with uh, Vladimir Putin, at least up until the Ukrainian invasion. I haven't kept up on what their relation with Mr. Putin is since then, as well as in the United States in Washington, D.C. And their founder in the 18th century <coughs> dismissed all Gentiles as being irredeemably evil, as husks. And, and this comes from the Kabbalah. This comes from the Zohar and, uh, and other texts. And what people don't realize, including many of these dispensationalist Protestant evangelicals who are allied with the Israeli settlers and others, they'll have Hasidic rabbis come to their churches and talk about supporting the Israeli settlers in their dispossession of the Palestinians. And they're so ignorant that they don't know when they're standing, these Hasidic people are standing in the sanctuary of the church, you're looking at a Kabbalist. I mean, that's the prime distinction. There actually was a movement against the Hasidim called the Mithnagnum in Lithuania with the Goan of Vilna, who was opposed to the, the inordinate emphasis on the Kabbalah, which he felt was a part of the Hasidim. Well, now the Hasidim are a leading, highly visible aspect of Orthodox Judaism and deeply implicated in the black magic of the Kabbalah. I'm sorry to characterize it that way, but that's exactly what it is. It's an attempt to overcome nature, to elevate the Shekinah in, in the place of God, and helping they themselves to become, well, they actually put themselves up as a type of God because in, in the Babylonian Talmud, in the Talmud tractate Baba Metzbia 59b, uh, it says, they have God saying, my sons have defeated me, my sons have defeated me. <clears throat> Halakha, meaning the law, is not decided in heaven, but on earth, in the rabbinic court, like the Vatican court. So you have this egotistical and pathological pride, which is what I would say, Mark, is the prime aspect of the occult. It preys on our pride, on that earliest idea that we would be gods, that Satan worshipped, that Satan whispered in the ears of Adam and Eve. That's the essence of 
The Western secret societies, where did they get it from? They got it from the Kabbalah. Where did the Kabbalah get it from? Well, where was the Kabbalah and the Talmud written initially? In Babylon. And what was Babylon? A belt of transmission for Egyptian paganism. So we're back to the fount of all of this. Can Christians in any way, didn't St. Paul say, what, what fidelity has darkness with light? And what connection can darkness possibly have with light that we are supposed to stay separate from this? And yet they've invaded the sanctuaries. Actually, invaded is the wrong word because they've been asked in. That's not an invasion. They've actually been been asked in. And so these are all big issues, which I wish were at the center of the conservative family values movement. And even at the center of new age and occult people who are more curious about how they may have been manipulated and sold on various types of Crowley Crowley propaganda, the British intelligence agent, Aleister Crowley, his Abbey of Thelema, which comes from the Catholic monk Rabelais, do what thou wilt shall be the, the whole of the law. And all of these aspects, which promise liberation, like the channelers promise to put you in touch with an angelic being who will help you guide your life and actually despise humanity. The great lure of Satan is, is that he's going to make us powerful. We're going to become rock stars. We'll have all the drugs, all the girls and all the money. But Satan is the enemy of the human race. And whether or not those particular temptations are fulfilled in this life. Ultimately, one's eternal destiny will be much a sorrowful thing as a result of that intervention from the dark forces. Well said. Yeah. And, and I do want to point out something that you wrote in your book. And I myself, I was allured. I'll admit it. I was allured by the, you know, occult New Age stuff as, you know, sort of a cradle Catholic. I found more interest in that because I, I learned more about history in those, you know, subjects than I ever did in, in catechism. And it was fascinating. But I'm quickly realizing that the occult is exactly how you say these invisible entities who do not have our best interests in mind and are manipulating our soul's ability by keeping our our power focused on our mind. And, and one thing that kind of touches on this, at least for me, was when you wrote, in the name of the expansion Excuse of... Excuse me, what page are you on? I will go... Yeah, page 37. Okay, go ahead. In the name of the expansion of knowledge, the Renaissance contracted it. God's light is all-expansive, never-ending, and unlimited. The Renaissance spirit is the embodiment of fraud, the exploration of the bogus freedom the serpent offered in the garden. The freedom of the serpent is not a limitless universe, but a hermetically sealed prison, the claustrophobia and blindness of human subjectivity, the theater of our mirrored ego mistaken for the cosmos. And I think that sums it up really well i mean people for st who consider themselves students of the occult should feel a little bit worried when they 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 read that and understand the implications of it because i feel you know that's exactly what's happened well i thank you for bringing that out because that really is the essence of it man the measure of all things and pico della mirandola's other work beside and the most famous one other than the 900 theses is on the dignity of man and this was a treatise which Pope Saint John Paul II regarded as blessed and seminal. The project of liberation was in actuality an occluding self-referential construct which limited humanity to one severely crippled and warped corner of experience, giving rise to the techno-nihilist hell today 
predicated upon, paradoxically, mystical superstitions tempting us to play God. And by succumbing to those temptations, we are led to the death of nature, not its enhancement. And I think the great contest in our time is between medieval Catholic fidelity to nature and Renaissance neo-Catholic consent for the God-man who will allegedly improve and perfect it. Had that highlighted as well, and and that's very pertinent. I think, you know, if people spent the time reading the work you've put together over the course of your many books, this one in particular, they'll really restart, or I, I hope they'll start to rethink our, you know, our American contempt for the church and Jesus Christ particularly being like the the pinata of that and taking all of the the blame when really it's the it's the pope who should be the first among equals who puts himself as you put at the top of the pyramid they've they've taken the name of Jesus and thrown it in the mud not Jesus himself you know i think that's one of the biggest travesties that's occurred in the religious world is is you know, most modern people consider religion a source of, you know, sort of unprogressive thought, you know, a, a source of, of things that, that need to be fixed and re-examined when I would disagree with that. I would say there are, are tenets that have been stabilizing forces in humanity that were brought to us through the life of Jesus Christ. And without those, I think we would be in a much worse situation currently. And maybe the crypto cryptocracy would have advanced further if it wasn't for the life of Jesus Christ being remembered in the way that it has been. Yes, and I would distinguish between the life of Jesus Christ, as you say, and religion, Mm. because it can be the opium of the people, and in its modern incarnation is churchianity, where people are mouthing the gospel, but they're not really living it. I asked one of the pastors, Protestant pastors that I know, I said, you know, in Psalm 15, it it defines who the godly man is. And it says, he who does not take interest on money. And then in Luke 6, Jesus says, lend expecting nothing in return. And I said to the pastor, why don't you preach from the pulpit against the renting of money as the early church did and the church for a thousand years did? And he turned to me and he said, well, it's really not clear about this renting of money. And and he didn't try to engage me on Psalm 15, why Psalm 15 isn't clear. It seems abundantly clear to me. And why Jesus was apparently wrong when he said, lend expecting nothing in return. And I think what happens is, is we get disgusted with Jesus rather than getting disgusted with churchianity when we see the hypocrisy of the people who proclaim themselves as the pastors or priests of Christianity, and then they are so miserably betraying that gospel. I think that much less damage is done by atheists, even though I know that the Soviet Union was atheist, and it certainly did tremendous damage. But in terms of deceiving people, much more damage is done by those who claim the mantle of Jesus Christ but then actually preach things which are contrary to it or live their lives contrary to it. And the hypocrisy then undercuts our faith in Jesus as an atheist who says, well, I don't care about your church. I'm not going to infiltrate it. You know, 
I mean, I don't believe that there is a God. That guy seems to me, in my life, what I have seen is more people have been alienated from Jesus and his gospel by the bad example of false Christians than by some atheist preaching to them that there is no God. Absolutely. And if these conservative Christians who get so upset about atheism and whatnot would only focus on that and reforming, as you have set your sights on reforming and and, and in a way that is extremely validating. You know, I I commend you for your work going through must be volumes and volumes to track down a lot of this stuff. And I don't want to take up too much of your day. I'm really grateful that you spent this much time with us, but I, I want to maybe focus on something you mentioned earlier, which is this subjective reality, Machiavellian, you know, word twisting. And one quote that you have at the top of page 64 is, the white which I see is black if the hierarchical church decides it. And I actually think that that was a continuation from the page before, but you're talking about Right after this, the founder of the Jesuits, Ignatius Loyola, and I'd like to spend some time discussing him because I know a lot of people have ideas about what the Jesuits are and who they are, and and I want to know where they fit into the overall cryptocracy. That's another excellent question that I'm grateful to you for raising because that's so important and it's it's fairly complex. And we have to have the ability to think deeply and to make distinctions. And so many people today whose most of their mentation is based on YouTube videos and some other form of videographic information, they don't spend the time in the books analyzing the texts. And so their ability to detect fraud is atrophied. And their ability to make distinctions, which is key to any advancement of human learning at a high level, is absent. And so what I'd like to say here is that the funny thing about the Jesuits is they're both a boogeyman to certain hidden factions which want to discredit the entire Catholic Church by discrediting the Jesuits. And yet at the core of the Jesuits is this very problematic figure of Ignatius of Loyola. So we have to make these distinctions, which are paradoxical, but they're not contradictory. The words of truth are often paradoxical, but doesn't mean that they're double-minded or contradictory. So quite often in conspiracy theory circles, replacing the Kabbalists and the Talmudists are the Jesuits. They are made to be the center and the source of much of the occult evil in the world. And that is wrong. As a scholar of this area, I can say that that is wrong. The Jesuits have been very problematic. They have done some evil things, okay? And they've also done some wonderful things. They have, with their emphasis on scholarship, they brought the gospel to the Chinese, the only ones who ever penetrated into that forbidden city of China, Long before the Americans went to Japan, the Catholics were in Japan, the the Jesuits were in China, and also as missionaries to the indigenous peoples of South America, for example, taking individual Jesuit priests, taking up their cause and fighting the big Spanish and Portuguese landowners who were oppressing them and being martyred as a result of that. Also, the Jesuits in the Iroquois and Huron battles 
it's often said that we need to return the land to the American Indians. And when I hear that, I have to laugh because in many cases, though not all, Native Americans stole that land from some other Native American tribe. So how exactly are you going to sort it out? I really object to this canonization of any people as being superior to any other people. There's such a thing as white supremacy and there's such a thing as Native American supremacy. Both of them are wrong. And they tend to inculcate moral abasement in the people who hold those views, and not just among whites either, so that the Iroquois were determined to exterminate the Huron. As, for example, in Montana, the Blackfeet tribe was determined to exterminate the Flathead and and steal their land. And that's a whole history of tribal warfare in America, both before Columbus and afterwards. Who was there to try to make peace between the two factions? The Jesuits who were horribly tortured. The the Haudenosaunee Iroquois Indians had raised torture to a level of perfection which is almost inconceivable. They had master torturers. If you were taken to their headquarters at Canadasaga near Seneca Lake in the Finger Lakes region of upstate New York, it might take three to four to five days for you to be killed. That They knew how to keep you alive while pulling your intestines out of your body or flailing your skin. So here were the Jesuits knowing that this could be their fate and trying to make peace between those tribes. So that sort of bedrock type of evangelism cannot be dismissed. There was nothing wrong with it, and they were heroic in their application. But if we go to the root of St. Ignatius, the founder, he was a military soldier, certainly a very interesting person in terms of his willpower in terms of his dedication. But the statement that he made, uh, which you quote from page 64 of my book, The Occult Renaissance Church of Rome, he stated, rules for thinking with the church, rule number 13, that we may be altogether of the same mind and in conformity with the church herself, we ought always to hold that the white which I see is black if the hierarchical church so decides it, end quote. So consequently, according to the Jesuit founder, if our God-given reason and our conscience tell us something is good, while the Church of Rome decrees that it is bad, Ignatius tells us that we must believe that it's bad. And that's the same overturning of reality, the same defective epistemology that's going on right now. We see a man impersonating a woman, and we have to say that's a woman. And if we don't, we're kicked off Facebook, Twitter, maybe YouTube. I don't know what will happen to this broadcast. And possibly if I was a junior executive in a corporation right now and someone was quoting my talk with you today, I could lose my career that I had gotten an MBA from the Wharton School to achieve simply because I said the emperor has no clothes. And conservatives in America and in Europe don't know that one of the fathers of this defective epistemology is the founder of the Jesuits, St. Ignatius of Loyola. And it's things like that that get me so excited about revisionist history. You know, they say, conservatives say revisionist history is an enemy because it's trying to change our view of George Washington, the great founder of America. And by the way, I happen to believe that George Washington was a, a fine man and the founder of America. But the idea that history is cast in concrete and we can't revise it, well, somebody's always digging up a diary or a letter which has been discovered, which changes our view of history. And so revisionist history, to me, is such a wonderful adventure and why I've dedicated my life to it. 
in finding out things like this. What is one of the, not the prime one, but what is one of the sources of the defective epistemology that family values conservatives are protesting today? It comes from the founder of the Jesuit order, which, by the way, Blaise Pascal, one of the Catholic intellectuals that I admire very much in the 18th century, he took on the Jesuits in his not very well-known provincial letters, which I recommend. There's only one English translation I've ever found. It's available on Amazon, and, and of course, I prefer that you check with your local bookstores first. It's his Pensies, which are the uh, where people's attention are attracted to his book, The Pensies. And yet the provincial letters is where he takes on the Jesuits. And there's a background to that, and I, I won't I won't trouble you with that. But yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because so we're distinguishing between how, like the Rothschilds, too much is made of the Jesuit role in controlling the occult, and I see actually very little of that. And however, I do see a great deal of Rothschild involvement in banking in the later years of our history of usury, but not in the original founding of the permission for usury in Christendom. No, that's that's uh, that's maligning the Rothschilds in that regard. Let's stick to the truth, okay? Let's follow the truth wherever it leads. Let's eliminate confirmation bias, where we open up history books and encyclopedias in order to confirm our biases. Let's see, what can I find here? I don't think Hitler was that bad a guy. I'm going to grab this statement over here and this statement over there. Or I'm out to prove that the Rothschilds were the wickedest bankers of all time. No, that's that gets you nowhere, okay? And people sense that. And you're not advancing human knowledge. If after I'm gone from this world, it can be said that I helped to advance human knowledge, human learning, to give kids an education and a broader perspective on humanity, because the past is prologue. If you don't really master the past, you're going to make the same mistakes. We're we're going to make mistakes, but they shouldn't be the same ones. And in order to fulfill that high ideal to the best of our ability, being human, we we won't make it all the way. But one of the reasons why Jesus said, be therefore perfect, is because in attempting to be perfect and falling short, you still achieve something great. And, And that is to be surprised by history and not afraid of it. When I first found out the degree to which Adolf Hitler had betrayed, I mean, he basically was elected as chancellor, and he never received a majority of the vote, by the way, but he had the preponderance of the vote and became chancellor in 1933, was on, and this is little known, was on the plank of Gottfried Feder, F-E-D-E-R, who always said he was that the National Socialist Deutsche Arbeiter Party, the National Socialist German Workers' Party, was dedicated to destroying the slavery of mammon and mammonism, money worship. How would you do that? Precisely as I've discussed here with you today, that you would stop the renting of money. Hitler campaigned on that. Many historians believe that his popularity was based on that. I thought that that was true. I thought, well, at the very least, you know, he actually was a sincere enemy of the money power. And if I had confirmation bias, I would have steered clear of the fact that after he was elected, he internally exiled his best friend, Gottfried Feder, and murdered He murdered the other campaigner, Gregor Strasser, who was the leading campaigner, especially in the north of Germany, in the Prussian areas, 
for the campaign against usury. He had him killed along with several other people that he thought were rivals of his who had actually helped to get him into power. Now, conventional history says, oh, he he murdered his fellow gangsters. Gregor Strasser wasn't a gangster. Gregor Strasser was someone who wanted peace with Germany, who wanted to appeal to the third world. He thought that he was horrified by English colonialism. No, you can't you can't saddle Gregor Strasser with it. He and Federer were the impetus, the engines of the campaign against the money power, which helped Hitler to become so popular in Germany. Well, that led me to write a book, Adolf Hitler, Enemy of the German People. When that book was published, I lost many, many customers, readers of our newsletter, Revisionist History, and got death threats and so forth. Well, that's water off a duck's back as far as I'm concerned. My whole vocation is to do exactly that, to bring up these anomalous facts, which not only advance human learning, but excite people. If I were a high school or college professor of history, I wouldn't kill the love of history, which most people have. If I'm at a store or a bank and people ask me what I do and I say I'm a historian, they immediately say, I love history. And they start telling me an anecdote about some aspect of history, which intrigued them. But more often than not, the teaching stupid profession, that's what I call the professorocracy, has killed that love of history. And I would love to kindle it in people by getting them excited about all of these anomalies which don't fit into the official picture which has been given to us. And I have to thank people like you who are real explorers because I first came to know you when I heard your broadcast with one of the gentlemen that you interviewed with and I contacted you by email about it. And I thought that he was a fast talker, very glib, articulate, voluble, and uh, you held your own there. And also the degree to which you're so respectful towards your audience, which is not a prerequisite for me. I actually like opposition, but all of that just impressed me. And the fact that you kind of straddle these worlds between the occult, the new age, uh, the cannabis culture, and at the same time, you've never let that flame of curiosity die inside of you. And you're willing to entertain things that possibly completely contradict your own gestalt and your own worldview. And that's what I'm looking for in people and what I hope that I possess in myself as well. And as long as we keep that alive, I think that there's hope. Wow. Mr. Hoffman, what a kind thing to say. Thank you so much. I appreciate that compliment. And from you, it means all the more. I, yeah, I, I got to admit, you know, you know, I don't know quite where to, where to fall most times when I talk to certain guests because curiosity has never let me down and I don't feel like I can make a conclusion in any which way, especially at this point in my life. So yeah, I mean, and that's what's made my family think I'm crazy, believe it or not, is the fact that I'm willing to question all this stuff. And I find it tremendously well gratifying and also reassuring that there are folks like you out there who have who have lived a full life doing that, you know, and, and every episode I, I can find common ground in the fact that at least people think we're both my my guests and I are crazy for, for doing so. And you know, I gotta say it is, you know, a little bit sour to joke about that because the world shouldn't be that way. The world shouldn't be in the state that it is. And someone 
like yourself is is necessary in these dire times. So all the, the and don't let it get you down because the inmates have taken over the asylum. <laughs> if you read Edgar Allan Poe, he predicted it in his short story, The System of Dr. Tar and Professor Feather. So when you get a minute, maybe around All Hallows Eve, you can pick that one up. Well, I want to thank you for having me on today, Mark, and I hope we stay in contact maybe every three or six months, get together again sometime. And uh, also, I'm going to, when I'm not quite as busy, I know you've heard this refrain from me in the past, see if you can help me get going on a, a podcast at some point in the future. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you know, I really want to encourage people to pick up the Occult Renaissance Church of Rome. I showed them, you know, it's got almost 23 more pages than Solomon had wives. So it's a great book <laughs> for you to pick up, uh, keep you occupied through these warm or colder months. And wow, Mr. Hoffman, it's been a true pleasure talking to you. And, and I, I would love to, to make this a regular occasion. I think the listeners of the audience would appreciate, or the listeners of the show would appreciate that. And you know, on the point of YouTube censorship, I should point out that thanks to Adam Curry, this podcast and any podcast will never be censored. So whether or not YouTube decides they, they don't want us talking on their platform, folks can always find our conversations on an RSS feed. And, you know, this is the, the as you said, the original intention of the internet. You know, it took a little while for us to get to this point where we could, you know, freely and availably host, you know, veritably what could be like a talk show, you know, 50 years ago, this is, is the same thing as a talk show and for a very low price and, you know, from the comfort of our homes. <laughs> so yeah, it's been, it's been really, you know, a trip to, to talk about all this stuff with you, Mr. Hoffman. I, you know, the, the honor is all mine, but until next time, folks, please follow up with Mr. Hoffman. Where can they do that? To, to find uh, the books. Amazon yeah. obviously isn't the place, but you have a website, revisionisthistory.org, correct? Actually, that is so. Amazon has banned three of my books, but that one has uh, made it through the censors filter thus far. Thanks be to God. You never know. But And also, it can be purchased at, from our own website, which is www.revisionisthistory.org. Excellent. Excellent. Well, listeners... Wherever you are in the moment, explore the moment in the now. conversation with Michael Hoffman, someone who I have really grown to like and appreciate. His research is really one of a kind, and uh, despite what you might read on his Wikipedia page, he's actually a very uh, sound-minded, uh, kind, and 
incredibly intelligent individual who's gone to great lengths to find evidence to support exactly what we all suspect, which is that there's some sort of hidden force, some sort of dark agenda. We may not all agree on who or what exactly that is or who or what is to blame, but I think Michael Hoffman's research deserves to be in the round table. It deserves to be in the argument. And I don't think that uh, enough podcasts are willing to have a guy like Hoffman on because of what seems like a controversial uh, take on some subjects from him. So, But that's contrary to what I've experienced from him. Like I said, very kind, uh, very generous too. He's always uh, been very upfront about compensating me for any uh, time or advice <laughs> that I've given him, which was very minimal, but he was kind enough to send me $50 and Instead of cashing the check, I said, hey, Mr. Hoffman, you know, I'm not going to cash this check. It, it, it means more to me as a memento. Uh, I'd actually rather if you'd send me uh, this book. And it happened to be the book we discussed today. So very kind of him to send it to me. And this episode clearly means a lot to me because it's coming out on the second anniversary of the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. So enjoy i hope you look forward to more episodes like this one where we dive into subjects that maybe few are talking about few at this level at least so uh, definitely go and check out michael hoffman's work his links will be in the description he is a revisionist historian and that is a job <laughs> that is not agreeable to maybe most people so uh support michael hoffman because i'm sure it could feel a little lonely at times uh when you're you're doing that kind of research you know we all have families that think we're crazy for different reasons now as for me i'm just really stoked at the fact that we have almost a million total downloads for this podcast and uh yeah, I mean, got almost 220 episodes plus 40 to 50 bonus episodes of different varieties. And uh, yeah, it's just really incredible that the show's been listened to that many times, almost a million times. I, I could have never imagined that when I started. So thank you so much for everybody who's here who's listened, who supported the show, especially everybody supporting the show. Uh, Rob, Billy, Micah, Dr. I, you know, Tuna. There's so many really cool people that I've gotten to know through the Telegram. Shout out to just to name a few, because there are so many more beyond that. Uh, those are just <laughs> the ones I see the most, I'll say. But uh, yeah, shout out to everybody supporting on Patreon. Shout out to everybody supporting on Rockfin. We've been doing really well on Rockfin ever since I started uploading the videos there. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to 200 more, you know, <laughs> or two year, two more years, four more years, five more years. Who knows how long this show will go? Uh, I, 
I can guarantee as long as Sam Tripoli is podcasting and uh, I'm booking for him, I'll be podcasting. So we'll see what happens next. Alt Media United, of course, is the podcast cooperative, which was founded shortly after this podcast was founded. And we're almost heading up on two years for that. So maybe some big news in store there. Uh, I've got another show that I do called Esoteric America that you can find on our YouTube channel. My family thinks I'm crazy. Or you can go to its own exclusive podcast feed wherever you listen to this podcast. Just search Esoteric America and subscribe there. You can also search Susquehanna Alchemy and find the show that I do with Michael Wan every week. We just had a guest on our show. Shout out to Sarah. Uh, We also have some awesome merch in the merch store check the link for that and a new patreon show that you can be a part of yes you the synchro wisdom dialogue where you and i have a conversation my time is valuable your time is valuable if you compensate me for my time i can hear out your story your research give you some advice maybe help you start your podcast really whatever it is that you'd like to talk about we can talk about in the synchro synchro wisdom dialogue synchro wisdom dialogue and it's available for anyone to listen to who supports us on patreon and if the episode really crashes we'll upload it to this feed right here for everyone to listen to so shout out to the three or four people who have signed up for that so far Uh, i've recorded I think two episodes of the synchro wisdom dialogue and we have a couple more scheduled up ahead uh, towards the end of the month my birthday of course is coming up next week so happy birthday to me send your happy birthdays via telegram instagram or just leave us a five-star rating and review maybe you can send me a one-time donation on my birthday october 11th i'll be 28 years old Maybe you want to send $28, one for each year uh, I've been alive. Or maybe you'll send $280 for $10 for every year that I've been alive. Really, it's up to you. However much you'd like to send, it'll all go to this podcast and supporting this show, uh, getting more interesting guests, more uh, really out there guests, I hope. I've got a couple really awesome episodes lined up. One where we discuss miracles and medicine in the high desert with someone who spent a lot of time on Navajo Reservation. We've got another episode coming up with a guy who's worked very closely with Alex Jones himself. And then we have uh, an even really uh, groundbreaking episode for the show, cult classic author coming on the show. So... Those are just a few hints as to what you can expect next. And if you can't wait, sign up on the Patreon. All of those episodes will be available early for you. And uh, we had 100 patrons last month. I don't know what it is with the billing on Patreon, but if you're a Patreon supporter, just double check, make sure your billing, you know, your payment went through. Uh, because each month, around the end of the month, we get like a 10 to 15% drop off of supporters. And I think it's just, you know, your card declined or whatever. And I don't care if you need to drop down to a, a lower tier. We got a bunch of options. 
it's all good. I'd rather have you a part of the family than uh, paying more than you can at the moment. But yeah, stick around. Join the Patreon while it's still hot. Who knows what we'll create next. We might do something that's all on the MyFamilyThinksOmCrazy.com website, which has some cool stuff you can go check out. But yeah, I want to see us get back to 100 patrons. I don't know. I feel like in the next week or two that might jump back up because those people will pay and they'll be on the patron list again but if not then that means there's a new contest so we already had one winner last month if their payment went through we're going to send them a sticker but since we're not still at 100 patrons whoever signs up it happens to be the 100th patron will also get a free sticker and a mystery gift delivered straight to their door and for everybody who is a part of the best friend book club just want a big apology to all of you i haven't sent any books out lately Uh, i thought i would do something different since the shipping was kind of crazy and i moved to a different uh, part of town where the post office isn't really close (laughs) ball really close by like it was before so that's why i haven't been sending the books out as much Uh, if you are on the 33 tier i will send you uh, books for the time you've been supporting the show don't worry i can keep track i do have a little bit of record keeping that patreon allows for so don't worry i know exactly who needs what and uh if you are one of those people, just send me a message and uh, and we'll sort that out. So anyways, sign up for the Patreon, the $33 book club tier. We're, we're no longer doing uh, the book giveaways as of now, but there were some people that were there before I decided to change it. So uh, if you sign up now, it's different. You're going to be basically having all access pass to all the content i create all the digital content i create moving forward i don't want to say too much more because i don't want to give anything away but it's a lot more than just writing it's a lot more than just pdfs so uh, sign up there and you will just get it all for free as it comes out and you won't have to buy it uh, separately like people Uh, who maybe just listen to the show for free but want to check out occasional bonus content, you will have that option as well. But anyways, I've already talked enough. This episode was really cool, definitely controversial. Michael Hoffman, like I said, is a friend of mine, grown to know him, and he said he'd like to do more interviews with me regularly. So, uh, yeah, look forward to that. Anyways, as for now... Stay tuned. If you haven't listened to my previous conversation with Michael Hoffman, do so. There aren't many podcasts out there with Mr. Hoffman uh, as uh, a guest. So go out and and listen to that. If you haven't already, don't skip the intro for that one. And uh, yeah, enjoy the moment wherever you are in the now. I'm a 
little extra terrestrial trying to stay human in a cesspool of professionals but i confess too much off of the tongue all my aunties and my uncles shield the ears of the young i be saying shit and they don't know where it's coming from in like a hundred years we went saw a from guns check the facts check the fed check the stars stanley mines was murked for a while the fuel cell car they each they own you could stick with your old ways but eat the rich and drink the motherfucking kool-aid and i can see the red on your lip stain white skin blue collar pure american made fuck it you can keep your blood soaked heritage and run the soul off the mold and the narrative yeah my girl thinks that i'm embarrassing my folks think i'm nuts but never question the parenting stuck in bed so my boss thinks i'm lazy connecting dots but it's all kind of hazy the morning in the net feeling like i'm dick tracy my pack thinks i'm un-american and shady I'm feeling unhinged lately Encounters of the fifth kind on the daily You could tell me that the president's an alien It wouldn't faze me My family thinks I'm crazy Think that I'm off in the deep end. One too many Netflix docs on the weekends. But check the budget for our military defense. Tell me we ain't scared of something not within reason. Steel beams, another 1492. And 9-11 was the red, white, and blue And you be lit off the floor, riding ain't got a clue All your dreams just shit on a Rockefeller shoes Don't believe a damn thing a politician ever said Ain't one brick left to gold up in the Fed They still got bricks of cocaine to make crack Oxy's killing the working class, FDA's whack Talking like this, got Ken talking behind backs Too much to unpack, so they talk smack And I'm just trying to converse with my clan But it ain't fan, so I'm here setting up camp Stuck in bed, so my boss thinks I'm lazy Connecting dots, but it's all kinda hazy I'm on the internet, feeling like I'm Dick Tracy My pack thinks I'm un-American and shady Yeah, I'm feeling unhinged lately Encounters of the fifth kind on the daily You could tell me that the president's an alien It wouldn't faze me my family thinks some crazy using your browser in incognito mode doesn't actually protect your privacy? Take back your privacy with IPVanish VPN. Just one tap and all your data, passwords, communications, browsing history, and more will be instantly protected. IPVanish makes you virtually invisible online. Use IPVanish on all your devices, anytime you go online at home and especially on public Wi-Fi. Get IPVanish now for 70% off a yearly plan with this exclusive offer at IPVanish.com audio.